Another very newsy couple of days in college sports. Nicole Auerbach here with me as she is every Wednesday to break it down. We've got many, many stories for Power Hour, probably too many for, for this week's Power Hour, Nicole. But you know, right before we started recording this thing, a couple pieces of news broke. One, Notre Dame Wake Forest will be postponed because Notre Dame has some issues with COVID-19 positives and with folks in, in quarantine because of contact tracing. And two, the Mountain West has changed its meeting date from Friday to Thursday because they want to get rolling. Well, I think it's, I guess, if you're going to start practices Monday, if you want to ramp up on Monday, that one extra day makes a difference. Yeah, so we should get some clarity They're not scheduled to vote on Thursday, but they can vote on Thursday. So, um, you know, the the latest out of that league that I'm told is that the ADs, you know, support October 24th as a start date, eight game season, basically the Big Ten model. Yeah, and that seems about right. And it's amazing how everybody that has now postponed is suddenly flipping back. The the MAC seems to be the outlier here, but... They we, could potentially get there. They we'll, could. We'll it was know. a financial issue for them in the first place and probably still is one. Well, and you know, the, the most disappointing piece of news from this week is UMass is coming back. They're going to try to play some games. That's right. UConn, I thought of you as soon as I saw that. I know, but UConn is still, they decided, they said no to spring. So they're not, they're not working to come back. So we're not going to be able to get that eight game home and home and home and home and home. And home and home and home and home. Unfortunately, that was my first thought when I saw UMass was coming back. But I actually, I was having this argument with a colleague yesterday that they're like, oh, well, who's, who are they going to play? Like, why is UMass doing this? And I think the idea of being like in a case of emergency, like break oh, glass team. Break is, UMass. Exactly. Yeah, in case I, of emergency, break UMass. I think that's going to be a very lucrative spot for them. Like, teams By, by the them. way, this is an Adam Sandler movie waiting to happen. Yes. Now, we, we both know Pete Thamel from Yahoo. He wrote a story when back when he worked for the New York Times. He wrote a story about, I don't even remember which school it was, but it was basically a, a, an FCS school that was for hire for a game to, to get your clock cleaned. And a movie studio, I think it was Sandler's studio, actually optioned it. But UMass actually fits this even better. Yes. Because it's basically, do you need someone to come to your stadium Saturday? Yes. Is it... Wednesday. Yes. Okay, great. We'll be there. And listen, this wasn't terribly surprising to me because I know that UNC, which said on Tuesday that they tried to reach out to 13 to 15 schools, I know they made a call to UMass. So this is something that's percolate. People need people to plug in right now. You don't think Wake Forest, if UMass had been ramped up and fully practiced and conditioned and ready to go, wouldn't call UMass right now? Oh, absolutely. 100%. This is you, you got a stadium. You may or may not have some people in now. Now, what's interesting is like with some of the ACC schools in North Carolina, there's no fans in the stadium anyway. So it's not like they're going to sell some tickets, but right. they are getting inventory to meet the requirement to have enough TV inventory. Well, and, and you've got a couple of weird situations popping up already. We, we, we knew this would happen, but like North Carolina is about to go three weeks 
between games. Mm-hmm. And Mac Brown was basically saying they're just trying to pretend that their Syracuse game just didn't happen, like that it was a one-off, and that they're ramping up towards their opener. Like that's how they're mentally framing it because there's going to be weird gaps when other people cancel on you. Yeah, it, it, it's going to be strange. And we haven't even mentioned, by the way, the SEC starts this weekend. Yes. They, they pushed their time back probably in part to avoid some of the stuff that we've seen the last few weeks. Now, I, I talked to, to Greg Sankey, the commissioner of the SEC, for a story that, that is running as we speak. If, you, if you're listening to this podcast, you can read it now. But it's about what, what they've learned during this period. And, but he was saying, you know, initially that the thought was, okay, they were trying to get through the wave of students coming back on campus. There were going to be inevitable COVID spikes. They were trying to get through that part of it. But one byproduct of that is they've been able to watch everybody else and see what happens. But, you know, it, even even Greg Sankey's not going to pound his chest and say, hey, we did this the right way because they don't know yet. They don't know if they're going to have to deal with that. Everybody basically is just knocking on wood for as long as they can until the ball gets kicked off. And, and I mean, I'm sure they're prepared for it to happen. I mean, we had been wondering last week if Missouri was going to be able to play Alabama in the opener because they had some cases last week. And, you know, that is a head coach in Eli Drinkwitz who's been transparent about the amount of cases that they've had and how many players have been out. And, you know, it looks like they got some players back this week. That game is still on. But it, it would be foolish to think that this is not going to affect the SEC or the Big Ten or the Pac-12 when they come back. They're going to have less makeup dates because they're not going to have those built-in idle weeks. So we're absolutely going to have – everyone's going to have to deal with this. But you are able to learn from what you've seen. Like I think the SEC, and I'm sure Greg addressed this. I haven't read your story yet. Talked about they kind of duplicated the Big 12's postponement policy about, you know, and a little bit adjustments. But you were able to see what other people were doing to figure out what was playable or not. And so the Big Ten's going to learn from everyone that goes before them. Same thing. And one of the one of the things that, that Greg told me, it's not just what they saw, but what they heard or rather couldn't hear. If you were watching games this past weekend, you notice there were players that were playing through the whistle because they couldn't hear the electronic whistles. So the SEC may actually be going with real whistles. They haven't quite decided what they're going to do yet, but they they've basically done the math on it and said the the electronic whistles solve one problem but they cause a potentially greater problem and that would be if one player hears it and one player doesn't one player stops and one player smashes the dude you could have a pretty serious injury so they have to decide you know balance that out and so you may see some SEC officials with real whistles this weekend uh, as someone who has been catching up with some sideline reporters about what this new normal is like that has been one of the main complaints. They said it's been insanely hard for them to hear it as well. So that's actually very reassuring. Thank you for reassuring this to me because I am just, you know, it's such a minor thing when you hear it over the summer and you're like, oh, they're going to, you know, different whistles, blah, blah, blah. But then when you see it play out and everyone's confused and you're like, this is, this is a problem. Yeah. There there was a a play where Zach Smith, the quarterback for, for Tulsa nearly got decapitated by an Oklahoma State player if the Oklahoma State player had not at the very last second heard the electronic whistle, but he, he hadn't heard and he was still coming. And so that, that's what they're trying to avoid. But it, 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 Nicole, that 
kind of brings us to what you can hear later in this show. We, we talked to ESPN's injury expert, Stefania Bell, about this because we've spent so much time talking about COVID-19 that we haven't talked a lot about actual football injuries, which are a big deal in every season. And in this season where people had shortened off seasons or maybe you had a longer runway like the SEC did, but you had guys who missed multiple weeks because of, of quarantine or contact tracing, this is going to be an issue. There, were, there are going to be injuries that affect this season that are unique to these circumstances. And hopefully with the whistle thing, they can get that straightened out so there are not cases where somebody didn't hear a whistle and somebody just got clobbered because somebody else stopped. Yeah, and, and I think that it'll be a really interesting listen for, for our listeners because, you know, you're talking about injuries because you didn't ramp up appropriately. And that's been such a talking point in college football. And, you know, you, that was why these coaches wanted their players back as early as possible in June when the NCAA allowed them. And, you know, and you had those baked in extra, you know, kind of strength and conditioning weeks to, to help ramp up. But you still had disruptions during fall camp. You still have schools in the West that are trying to figure out when the earliest is they could play because they couldn't practice or they couldn't work out in a weight room. And all that stuff actually matters. And it's what Andy is talking about. You know, it's it's these injuries. It's it's football injuries. It's it's hamstring injuries. It's it's all the stuff we we saw a lot of these in the NFL. And it's hard, to, as as Stefania points out, it's hard to know if that's just, you know. It was just that one week, you know, there's always a time in, in every season where it seems like everybody gets hurt or if it's because the off season was so weird. And so it's going to be interesting to see how college football handles that, especially with, as we mentioned, Notre Dame has a bunch of players in quarantine right now. What does that mean for, for their health and safety from a football standpoint next week when they get out of it? You know, it, it's just it's kind of a backdrop question to all of this. Yeah, it is. It is pretty crazy how fast this is coming. And this is something we'd normally be talking about. Now, I, I think it's actually pretty fortunate so far that there haven't been a lot of serious injuries in college football, uh, given the circumstances. So hopefully that that continues to be the case. But like you said, the NFL, we saw a bunch. And it's just one of those that you, you got to you got to think, uh oh, where is there a 49ers Jets game around the corner because yeah. of all this? Now, it, hopefully not. If you follow that. They're wondering if it may be the field at MetLife Stadium, which would be even weirder. So we'll see what we'll see what happens on that. But it's just one of those deals where that part kind of got forgotten because there's this other huge thing going on. Yeah, and we've been talking about health and safety in one area, but it's health and like physical safety in the other. And so um, you know maybe it's going to help that. You know, college players were able to get back to campuses earlier than, you know, NFL players reported for training camp or little things like that. Maybe that helps or the fact that, you know, a number of schools, you know, they bought up all those, um, you know, those bands and 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 dumbbells to send their players mm -hmm. back when everyone's in quarantine. Like maybe that stuff will help. So um, so it'll just be an interesting storyline to, to follow just because it's already hit the NFL and. We'll see, and, and hopefully college football players, you know, did did ramp up appropriately and, and are going to be able to play and avoid those types of knee and hamstring injuries. Yeah, I, that would be good. Now, one of, one of the other things Greg Sankey told me is they're going to be following how the injuries go in the SEC this year because they did have a longer period of practice yeah. before playing a game, but they kept the same number of contacts. And his thinking is 
if it proves that there are less injuries, then that's something that maybe everybody in the country should consider going to in a normal season is don't don't ramp up more contact, Space but out. have a longer. Yeah, just have a little bit longer runway. So I thought that was kind of interesting. And and we will we'll see. I mean, because as as you'll hear Stefania explain, some of this stuff is anecdotal and all of it is everybody trying their best to just do the right thing right now and, and, and try to help out as much as they can. And it's just not that easy. But Nicole, it, it is a. Uh, it is that time. It is a very heavy news day. We don't have time to get to everything and give it the full, you know, five-minute treatment. So I think it's time to play a little power hour. All right, let's hear it. When news breaks, the Athletics' Nicole Auerbach is there. But sometimes so much news breaks that she can only spend one minute on each story. It's time for Power Hour. All right, Nicole, your first story, Missouri coach Eli Drinkwitz, you did mention him earlier. He has taken a little bit different tack than some of his fellow coaches. We've heard Lincoln Riley say this, and we've heard Jeremy Pruitt from Tennessee say that that they don't want to give out a lot of COVID information because they they claim it's a competitive disadvantage if they if they give it out. And Eli Drinkwitz said, this is a public health issue. It's not a competitive advantage issue. People should know what's going on within our football team as it relates to a pandemic. And I would say that's probably, for me, more important than whatever competitive advantage we feel like it might be to win or lose a football game. Uh, Nicole, Eli Drinkwitz is playing uh, Alabama in his opener as the Missouri coach. Uh, Thoughts on his philosophy, which I'm not sure he would have if he wasn't playing Alabama. Yes, I mean, I definitely think you already are at a competitive disadvantage when you're playing Alabama for 90% of the country. So I think that that probably goes into it. Still, I think it's worth commending. I think this is the correct approach because a pandemic does influence the rest of the community and the rest of the country, the rest of the world. So your numbers and potential spread on your roster do matter to the community at large. So I think despite the fact that, yes, maybe it won't ultimately matter whatsoever in this outcome or the margin of the game, I think it's absolutely the correct approach. One thing that I have harped on, we have all harped on all offseason, was that people were not being transparent enough about how frequent they were testing, how many people they were keeping out, how many people were in quarantine, all of these informations. We're still not getting numbers on positive tests. We're getting told these play- this amount of players are unavailable. So transparency is good, Eli Drinkwitz. Let's hope it's not just the Alabama week that we're getting it. But I do think that more and more coaches should see how lauded he is for this and hopefully start providing the same information. Well, and here's the other thing. Your ADs are talking to each other during the week. They know. Well, they're telling they're telling each other what what's going on because otherwise one AD might not send his team to play you. So well, and that, that we, information's being shared, it's just not being shared with the public. Well, and we and we le- right, that that and that's important to note. But also we learn from our colleague Max Olson's story this week about and Baylor's cancellation is you need to be transparent with your opponent. And again, you can do the same with the public. Otherwise, they get blindsided on yes. Fridays and find out they're not playing a game. So again, I just think in every level of this, share the information. Don't blindside people. Yeah. 
Yeah, and in, in most cases, it's really not going to be much of a competitive advantage. It's not going to change very much about the game at all. Next story, as everyone knows, Nicole, Deion Sanders, Coach Prime, has been named the head coach at Jackson State. Now, a TV reporter named Joe Cook put out a story this afternoon saying that Terrell Owens would be the wide receivers coach, Warren Sapp would be the defensive line coach, and a number of other former NFL luminaries would be coaching alongside Deion Sanders. Now, Warren Sapp has denied that. Deion Sanders himself has said, this is absolutely wrong. This is how junk gets started. Not a good way to get started with me. Hashtag Coach Prime. Wow. Nicole, I, I forget the, the story, the potential staff. In general, is Deion Sanders, head coach of Jackson State, going to be the best reality show in college football history? It will be the best reality show and probably like the worst hire. Um, I mean, this is a place that has very little resources. I mean, I I think it's a really fascinating time for someone so well known to go to an HBCU because we have seen black athletes reconsidering necessarily where they want to go and spend time. We've seen this trend in basketball as well with some five-star guys. Um, However, you have to know what you're doing and have some understanding of NCAA rules, recruiting, coaching at this level. Um, And so, you know, you don't have that here. You have someone who is best known in the, you know, recruiting world or high school and college world as, uh, you know, someone who, who didn't know how to run a prep school and ran it into the ground and ruined a lot of people's lives because of that and, and took away opportunities from, from high school athletes. And so I, I just think, um, you know, it's a, it's a very high risk, high reward potential hire. It is going to be a mess. It will be, we will be glued to it. This could end up being who some of people that he hires. It could be totally no one that he hires. There was so much misinformation around him being hired in the first place. It's just going to be a disaster, no matter what. Like a good disaster, bad disaster, it'll just be a disaster. It will be something to watch. And, and that the, the one thing I'll point out that you, that you mentioned, this job is hard. This, this job will take a lot of work. Like to succeed at Jackson State, you will have to work your butt off. So it's not a... I, you know, I'll have my assistant do this and have my assistant. If Dion is ready to do this, he, he'd better be prepared to do a lot of work because that's, that's the only way that that's going to work out. All right. One more story. Nicole, we assumed for most of the offseason that Jamie Newman would be the starting quarterback at Georgia. When he opted out, the assumption shifted to USC transfer JT Daniels, but it certainly seems like it's entirely probable that Dewan Mathis will be taking the first team snaps for the Bulldogs when they open their season against Arkansas on Saturday. Surprised? I am. Although, you know, I think that Kirby Smart's been kind of clear this week that they're still waiting for JT Daniels to get cleared physically. Um, and, and certainly that would impact who's been getting reps and who's ready to go. Um, but I think in general, people are very curious to see what this offense looks like. Everyone wants to see what Todd Munkin is bringing to the table here. Um, if it's not the guy that you thought it was going to be or the second guy that you thought it was going to be and it's going to be the third guy, well, then it better be a really good offense. Well, I, I'm fascinated to see this because Dewan Mathis obviously had the, the situation where he had to have a, a cyst removed from his brain last year. He was a, a pretty thin guy, kind of physically similar to Florida State quarterback James Blackman when he got to Georgia, but 
his private quarterback coach up in Michigan said that, that Dewan Mathis is up to 227 pounds, which if he's 6'6", 227, that's basically the size Justin Herbert was when he was a freshman at Oregon. And Dewan Mathis, we know, is a pretty good runner. So I'm kind of intrigued now. I am, I'm you a little mean, fascinated. You mean um, Los Angeles Chargers starting quarterback, Justin Herbert? Well, may, I mean, maybe. That's what, well, he made a if, start. If, so. if Anthony Lynn will, will go ahead and name him the starter, I mean, he almost beat the Chiefs. I know, I know. But yeah, no, I, I think that's going to be really interesting as well. And again, it's it, whenever there's something that's unpredictable in a quarterback race, you wonder, can that guy keep the job, right? Is this about JT Daniels not being medically cleared, or did he not win the job? Well, and that's my other question about Jamie Newman, and we don't know exactly what circumstances caused Jamie Newman to opt out. There, there have been a couple different theories floated about. Uh, one of those is, is Georgia had a receiver wreck his knee at practice a few days before Jamie Newman opted out, and, and maybe that had something to do with it. But also, it could be that Dewan Mathis was better than anybody expected in camp, and, and that competition was turning out completely differently than anybody thought. So it, it's going to be pretty fascinating to see. Nicole, we got to get to our guest. And for those who have not watched it yet, after you've heard Stefania Bell talk, I I want you to go watch the segment she did on E60, a special on E60 about Alex Smith's recovery from a just horrific leg injury, how he got back to playing in the NFL. It will, I mean, you might throw up but you will love Alex Smith forever afterward. Yeah, definitely don't eat while you're watching it because there is some gruesome images. Um, But yeah, at the end, you will want to die for him. You will like be so obsessed with Alex Smith um, that it's really incredible. And then when you need a pick-me-up after you watch that... Watch Ted Lasso. That's exactly right. We'll we'll have a full Ted Lasso conversation next yes. week because the season's about okay. to come to an end. We have much to talk about. I have about. a lot of we, thoughts. Yes, lot a lot of, of thoughts. thoughts. Remember, thoughts. Ted Lasso is Jason Sudeikis' character who is – he's a fictional college football coach who coaches Wichita State's very fictional football team because they haven't had one in a long time. Philip Fulmer, by the way, worked there early in his career. But he coached them in the national title and then gets hired to coach a Premier League team – in England. So great show. But Stefania Bell, if again, if you haven't seen this Alex Smith documentary, it is fantastic. And and one of the reasons is because Stefania has so much medical knowledge and it helps guide her storytelling in that. And she's going to help us try to figure out how this very weird off season and preseason and early season could affect the rest of the season in terms of injuries. So right now, here's me and Nicole with Stefani Bell. Joined now by our esteemed guest, ESPN injury expert, Stefania Bell. And Stefania, we talked about this a few days ago. Nicole texted me and said, I'm watching all these injuries happen in the NFL, and it hasn't happened yet in college football, but there's been this really short offseason. That is not Red Auerbach, by the way. That is Stefania's pooch. I'm sorry. Well, before, before we go, Stefania, what is, what is this pooch's name? <laughs> His name is Rico. He's a rescue Rico. from Puerto Rico. He even, nice. He, he goes to daycare in the morning, so he's totally tired out. But once I get home, I have no control if somebody walks by the front door or goes to the front door. 
And right before we came on, I said, I'm just going to hope that we can get through. And no sooner do we get in. Right when you were introducing me, he takes over. He, he steals my thunder. Can, can Rico throw a football over the mountains? That's the question. I don't think he can, but he has taken the footballs apart. That I have seen. <laughs> oh, that is a very good boy. Uh, okay, so Stefani, what, what I was asking is we've got these really short – preseasons, compressed preseasons for the teams that are playing now in college football. And the SEC is going to start playing this week, and they've had a little longer runway, but you've got situations where guys have missed significant chunks of practice because of of COVID, either isolation or contact tracing. And I'm curious, what, what risk is there of you know further soft tissue injury or, or more severe injury when you haven't had kind of the proper run-up time before you start playing? It's certainly not the way you'd like to start your season. I mean, there's there's a reason that they have spring practices in college and then they give off-season workouts and then when they get together, they gradually ramp things up and it's all based on what we know from the exercise literature, from the rehab literature, strength and conditioning that you do better when there is a progression of gradual increase in both volume and intensity of work. And if either of those two things spike too quickly, then you increase the risk for injury. That's been fairly well documented. Uh, Likewise, you know, there's some interesting literature coming out, particularly out of Europe with soccer players um, who play year round about the idea of too much rest. You know, you think, oh, you know, if they get a break and they just rest, they'll be fine. But when you decrease the workload uh, completely, as opposed to having some kind of maintenance workload, that also seems to be a precursor and risk for injury. So you've got kind of these two potential things, you know, combining together in the college football world. Um, we've certainly, we're, we're seeing a little bit in the NFL, anybody who's been watching the NFL, we, we just completed week two and uh, the attrition uh, due to soft tissue injuries has been pretty dramatic. Got a lot of people's attention already and they didn't have a normal preseason um, and, and a normal off season because you really couldn't tell, you, you couldn't give everyone the same kind of workout really depended on where you were. And for college players, it's much the same. It really depends on circumstance. Uh, what kind of apparatus do you have available to you? Could you even go outside and work out depending on where you were? So these colleges are trying to navigate, I think, something that's even more complex than what the pros are trying to navigate because you've got a community within a community you're dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic to different degrees, depending on your location. You have this non-uniformity of conditioning and workouts, and then potentially a very rapid acceleration to playing. So uh, I think everyone's doing a collective holding of their breath. The folks I've talked to who take care of athletes in the college world and just hoping that uh, they do the best they can and don't see a huge rash of injuries. I think that one thing that was really interesting earlier in the pandemic was the NCAA talking to coaches groups, talking to athletic directors and trainers, trying to figure out what the preseason ramp up period needed to be or look like, right? Because you're talking about there were people at home that could maybe go for a jog and that was it in terms of equipment and availability to to a gym for three months. And they settled on six weeks. And right now we're hearing, you know, the Pac-12 could come back and Mountain West and the MAC, how long would they need? And you've got programs in the Pac-12 that, you know, haven't been able to practice, haven't been able to really work out to the standard that they are. 
if they're if, if if they kind of agree on like a six week ramp up, but then they go with four or five, like what what are those differences? And and you mentioned soft tissue injuries. Are there certain types of injuries that are more common when you don't have that kind of like you know gradual adjustment up to that type of athletic activity? The, the challenge with the question you're asking is that we don't have a precursor to compare it to. You know, it's really a collection of data over time where people try to develop best practices based on what we know about how tissue responds to training. But we've never had this set of circumstances that have kind of all converged to make this perfect storm of the situation that you have now. So uh, when you get all these minds together, like you mentioned, and they're trying to determine what's the best way to prepare for this kind of season, they're essentially winging it a bit, you know, and doing it in the smartest way that they can with the science that's available to them, but not really knowing. So I think uh, is we don't even know that six weeks is a perfect time. It was just sort of the consensus of what feels like the best way. And does four weeks matter much versus six? Who knows? Because you're still dealing with some of those variables that uh, you couldn't control for otherwise. So I don't know that automatically I think, oh boy, well, the Pac-12, if they do four weeks, like that's just going to be totally different than everybody else. I think the concerns are just there. I, I don't think anyone would subscribe to a week or two, but it, I don't think anyone has the crystal ball that says this would be perfect and this isn't. And it, it's just, it's not that binary, you know, and, and it's hard when injuries are such a multifactorial issue anyway, you know, what was the playing surface like? What was the weather like? What was the training like? What's your pre-injury history and what's your genetics if you really want to get that far? And are you more predisposed to soft tissue injuries? What's the strength and conditioning like? And so, uh, boy, it's, it's tough. And I don't know, you know, the danger is if you have a week where there's a lot of injuries, everybody jumps to conclusions like, oh, this is terrible. We kind of did it in the NFL this past week. Um, but we do at least have injury data that they capture with NFL athletes year in, year out. The NCAA also has data monitoring to some degree, and there's certainly programs that they have in place um, to try and study injury concerns. But you also have the players rotating in and out of the NCAA so quickly uh, that, it, that it's hard to, to truly appreciate. When you say soft tissue injuries, we talk in muscle ligaments, tendons. Is that the, the, the basic? Yes. Good question. And I apologize for that. You know, it's funny because with injury reporting, it's just become so much part of the vernacular. People throw around like ACL, MCL, like, like, like they know, but I bet if I said to people, you know, so where's the MCL, you want to point that out? They're like, have no idea. And I, and I understand that it's just out there. It's terminology. And so we use it and we're not always sensitive to the fact that people might not know what we're talking about. Um, but soft tissue really is the soft pliable tissue. So not bony. So um, ligament. So when you hear about like knee ligament injuries, like ACL, et cetera, ankle sprains, high ankle sprains, uh, and then tendon. So you think of like Achilles tendon issues, um, patellofemoral tendon, which is like the knee or quad tendon, front of your, front of your leg attaching below your knee. And then um, muscle, you know, hamstring strains are probably the number one, especially in uh, speed skill positions. Uh, but any kind of soft tissue, uh, Come, you know, any kind of muscular injury would apply as well. Calf, you know, the lower extremity is really where you see uh, the risk when we're talking about football in particular. Um, maybe some upper extremity, but non-contact injuries and anything that affects the soft tissue seem to be 
the, the ones that we really have our eye on. We've seen a couple uh, Achilles tears in the NFL and, and uh, with the Colts. Specifically, yeah, two on one team. Is, is that, is that something that, that is unusual for, for this time of year? Or again, I, I don't want to jump to conclusions here, but I'm not, I don't remember hearing about that type of injury that frequently. There's certainly, and there's always outliers, right? One year, it'll be one team. Um, I'm from the Bay Area. I happen to think my 49ers, like, <laughs> just devastated by, you know, half the team uh, went out this week in New Jersey at the Meadowlands, and everybody's looking at the turf. You know, there's a, there's always something, and you have to be be careful with that. There's usually a few Achilles injuries a year. And what I will say from what we know about the NFL is that, because they capture injury data for preseason and season, we know that there tends to be a spike in lower extremity soft tissue injuries right around week two to three of the preseason. If you think about that, uh, teams are typically reporting about 15 days before the first preseason game. So in that first one to two preseason games and camp, that's when you see this spike. And it typically is associated with that increase in volume and intensity of work I was talking about. So as they looked at that when they were developing the new CBA, they wanted increased acclimation period to kind of more gradually get into the intense work. And that was a factor. Then COVID-19 came along and changed everything. And they were just trying to come up with what sort of plan would work. So to answer your question, I think when you're looking at the fact that they had no preseason games this year and week one and two of football action now kind of took the place of week one and two of preseason game action, might, might it be that when we get to the end of the season, we turn around and look back and say, oh, you know what? There was a big spike then. And then it sort of leveled off when people got uh, con- you know, conditioned to playing. Or is this going to be something that's going to be season long? We don't know yet. So, I mean, I know that, like, even for us, like, let's say, you know, Andy or myself go somewhere and we have to come back and our state requires a quarantine or whatever it is. We're not on a roster. We're not, like, (laughs) conditioned at a level that these athletes are. But because of contact tracing, because of positive test results, they're going to be – I mean, we've already seen this, a lot of disruptions in college football, isolation, quarantine – like how, how is that going to impact like the body's readiness to then play a game when you come out of a 14 day quarantine? <sighs> Again, it's uh, we're going to find out because we, we've never seen this before, but just intuitively we know that when guys uh, take a normal season, for example, and if you had some other um, injury, let's say it was uh, let's, let's say it was the shoulder injury that was enough to keep you from playing football, but um not keeping you, you know, locked down in a room, you'd have that athlete on a conditioning program, right? You'd want to be maintaining their cardiovascular health because the fear would be if you didn't do that and you put them back into competition, they would suffer from the deconditioning. So deconditioning is automatically a concern once you're talking about a quarantine situation because you really don't want to be, if somebody is suspected positive, and again, it it gets into what they're dealing with. If they're quarantined because they've tested positive, but they're asymptomatic, a lot of them want to be exercising. Like, why can't I exercise? And so there, there, there are guidelines that have been put out about what, if you're asymptomatic, what kind of things you might be able to do. If you are just on the um, kind of the awareness alert, you, you haven't tested positive, but you were exposed, what you could do there for conditioning. 
Um, but if you're positive and symptomatic, there's a whole different structure of what you need to go through to make sure there's not any latent symptoms, um, any potential cardiac or pulmonary side effects that haven't been detected yet, but would come up when you tried to reinitiate conditioning. So it really depends what category the athlete will fall into depending on their unique circumstances. Well, Stefania, this is going to be a weird year. I know uh, it's probably not much fun to, to talk about all this stuff, but I imagine there's quite a bit of fascinating data that's going to come out of all this. I think that it's um, a double-edged sword, right? Because we've seen already that there's just, if you're talking about COVID-19, there's been literature that's come out that sometimes come out quickly, that then people start poking holes in it. And, and it's hard because in the, in the world of medicine, people want to get to the best result the quickest that they can. And for the, I would say, you know, 99% of the people have really good intentions here. They're trying to take observations that they have and share them with the medical world at large to the benefit, hopefully, of everybody else that comes along. The danger is you're not controlled studies. Uh, you know, case reports are always more challenging when you're interpreting data off case reports than an actual controlled, um, you know, when you have subjects who are tested with something and then a control population. And we've already seen some flags, particularly, you know, you take the cardiac issue, which is I know has been a huge topic in college and the uh, myocarditis associated with COVID-19 and some of the things that came out that sounded alarm bells and then people have poked holes in some of that, like maybe the, the grouping of people where they found um, evidence of myocarditis post COVID-19 doesn't match with an athlete population. And so how do you interpret it? And these are all legitimate questions and concerns, but you're trying to execute plans for sports in real time with emerging data and an unknown virus. It, it, it is so hard to do. And uh, that's why I, I tend not to, you know, be throwing darts from the sideline, um, especially on social media, because it, it, I think that most people, you know, I get it. College sports is a business. We all know that. We, we work in the area. We know. But when it comes to the medical people, and I've seen Brian Hainline, the NCAA medical director on um, sports medicine conference that I was at. So he's talking to medical people. He's not having an appearance there for college football and the level of concern and trying to understand what to do in real time. That's in the best interest of the athletes uh, while still trying to accommodate the desire that people have for sports and to play. It's really tough. I wouldn't want to be the one making those decisions. And I think as long as people understand that it's an, a, they call it a novel and emerging virus for a reason and the NFL made it very clear, and I think they did a good job, that flexibility and adaptability would be key to the season. What works today might not be the thing that works two weeks from now. We have to take the information that we learn and we have to apply it accordingly. I think college football has to be fair to the audience and, and speak that loudly and clearly. What works, you know, when we start the season may not be what we're dealing with in weeks three or four. All right, Stefania Bell, thank you so much for joining us. Stefania is ESPN's injury expert, and I feel smarter. <laughs> 
I, I do. I do too. I'm going to, I'm going to steal some of these talking points to sound smarter to other people. Well, and, and thank Rico for us, please, Stefania. Oh, well, I'm sorry for the, the rude introduction on his behalf, but um, I'm, I'm glad he went back to sleep, by the way. He was very bored by what I was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> he hears his medical stuff all the time. Th- thank uh, you so much, Stefania. Yeah. Thanks for thank having you. me. All right. That is Stefania Bell and Rico. And you've heard a little bit of, of skittering from Red Hour back here. I, I got to get a dog again. It's been, it's now been a few years since since we had Lelou the Basset Hound and, and since she went off to doggy heaven. So Is, is uh, the my, squeaking in the background just making you miss having a dog? Yes. I miss having a dog so much and my kids miss it too. And we, we've talked about, you know, if we get one, what kind will we get? What size will we get? I'm a big dog person. Uh, my wife and my daughter want a smaller dog. I've heard Pomeranian tossed around. That's a little too first doggy for me. He I, is, I, Red is the same size as Pomeranian, so he basically would come up to your ankle, you know, which is why you hear him skittering around. He, you know, he's, he's this big, you know, he, he just is very low to the ground, doesn't really get much traction, you know, when he's, when he's listen, running around. Low center of gravity, low, low dog wins. Yeah. It's, that's all right. He literally Red. would come up to your ankle though. So I, mean, I think you should get a small dog. Small dogs are underrated. Yeah. I just, uh, I want another Basset Hound, but one of the things we found out after Lilu passed was that my daughter is actually allergic to, to dog dander. So we're going to have to go hypoallergenic. So we may have to get one of the smaller dogs Do or, or it. In, into the into the doodle family uh, yes. of dogs. So we'll we'll see how that goes. But I I feel left out. I feel left out when I've got two dogs on the podcast and I don't have a dog to to bark during the podcast. Yeah, you you need one. I mean, that's again, if we've learned anything about working from home during the pandemic, is you need to have a small child or a dog in the background of pretty much everything. Well, I can have my kids come in. Okay, then uh, next week, let's do that. My daughter wants to be a star. Like, she's already, she, she's like, why can't I be a YouTuber yet? And I said, because the internet's forever. So, but she's she's going to do it whether I want her to or not. So, uh, I may as well get her on the show, get her prepped. You know, Don't, I, don't tell her what Power Hour is actually referenced to. No, she'll find out soon enough. She lives in a college town, so... but hopefully not too soon (laughs) all right nicole it has been a pleasure and we will talk very soon because i'm sure there will be much more breaking news that we will have covered like a blanket at the athletic